tones of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. On this edition of the podcast, uh, we bring back two frequent members of the pod, and that is our full-time employee, Dave Cameron, and one of our beloved poll contributors, Joe Polakowski, from that biggest of apples, New York City. In what follows, we cast a gaze at some interesting performances in the small sample that is these first two weeks of the Major League Baseball season. Will Prince Fielder continue to hit home runs at a faster pace than he strikes out? We answer that question. Will Pittsburgh's Charlie Morton continue to walk three times as many batters as he strikes out while also posting an ERA below three? We attempt to answer that question. Will the Boston Red Sox ever reach the 500 mark this season? In fact, we don't attempt to answer that question for reasons almost too obvious to detail. In addition to looking at some of these early season small samples, we also discuss, in in some small way, a couple new features to the site. One of them, of course, is Mr. Joe Polakowski's morning after columns, or posts, in which Joe Paul details all of the events of the preceding evening. We also briefly discuss the new box scores that have made their way to Fangraphs.com. We use both things as an entree into a brief discussion about the ideal way to cover the game from a sabermetric perspective. These stirring topics and much more frivolity right now on Fangraphs Audio. It is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, here we are with, uh, well, it's our normal panel, Sans One. Uh, Matt Clausen couldn't be with us today uh, because he's in the middle of a sentence somewhere. <laughs> and uh, and he, uh, he he's not able to join us, uh, but uh, well, so we'll have to make do with these two. Uh, sorry, sacks, uh, you'll know them um, from their writing and of course from their many appearances here on the podcast. Uh, one of them is Dave Cameron joining us from the American South, where uh, Dave, uh, I don't watch it often, but I found myself watching the uh, um, Weather Channel recently, and I saw uh, like crazy amounts of. Hail, I guess, falling. Did you receive it? Were you on the receiving end? You know, the hail went a little bit south of us. We did have some really gnarly thunderstorms in the middle of the night a couple weeks ago, and so uh, you know, my beautiful wife decided that it would be a really good time to hide in the bathroom at two o'clock in the morning uh, while I was, you know, watching baseball and writing about baseball. So it was this humorous scene of my wife getting up, hiding in the tub, and I'm just blogging away. Uh, were you in any danger? No, it was just a big thunderstorm. It was one of those, like, wake you up out of bed, you know, lots of thunder and lightning and heavy rain. And um, But, you know, our house is pretty steady. So. Now, do, do, you guys get, do you guys get tornadoes? Is that a thing? There, there are yearly tornadoes that will roll through, but they uh, generally have not come through my neighborhood, so we've been pretty lucky. Yeah, I w- they wouldn't dare. Yeah, they may know not to mess with me. Right, right. Uh, okay, very good. So that's Dave Cameron joining us from the Biggest of Apples. Is uh, is our man uh, not not the only but one of the most important uh, polls writing about baseball today is Joe Polakowski. How are you doing, Carson? And I defy you to find another more important poll writing about baseball. Well, Dan Zimborski is pretty important. Oh yeah, I can't I can't measure up to him. I'm I'm afraid his sense of humor is just off the charts. He is he actually is legitimately hilarious, and I'll never forget uh, during our opening day chat last year. He started talking about this weird thing about fans and fan research, um, like actual fans and like getting your. It was sort of like in literally the eleventh hour, or maybe even later. Are we talking about oscillating fans here? Yeah, right. That was part of it. Hey, no, wait. On the subject of uh, extreme weather, uh, wasn't there some manner of 
tornado in New York City last year? Oh yeah, so last year um, it was it was quite bad. It ruined many a deck in Brooklyn, from what I heard. Oh yeah. Now are we talking um, like are we talking like Marcy Projects Brooklyn, or are we talking about like um, you know uh, uh, re- refabbed uh, brownstones Brooklyn? Yeah, we're talking like Park Slope area Brooklyn. Oh okay. Well, it's harder to feel sorry for them. <laughs> I mean, right? No, but wait. So like, I don't understand how does a tornado happen in Brooklyn? I'm not really sure, but I watched the YouTube video of it. I was up in Queens at the time, so I was, you know, well north of it. Yeah. And it, it kind of just the funnel club kind of just descended from the gray sky, from the green sky, and yeah. uh, and it kind of tore through the town and rained hail upon everybody. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Wait, do you know you both know? I, I of course now am spending my about to sort of spend my first summer in the Upper Midwest, and uh, we actually had tornado warnings uh, just last week, that same day. Uh, as maybe it, that stuff happened in North Carolina. It was terrifying. And, of course, nothing happened, but it was uh, it's terrifying. Um, anyway, uh, that has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about, but uh, let's do it. I guess the idea is that, like, uh, summer is here, and uh, besides frightening weather, it also brings baseball, uh, or, or at least uh, early season baseball. And one thing that I think is interesting to look at, and I, I sort of, I'm probably taking my cue here from, uh, Joe Polakowski, who's been providing the wonderful morning after uh, column pieces uh, every morning, 10 a.m. on Fangraphs. Uh, Joe, Paul, you talked about uh, the Indians, and, and I think probably more specifically as Drupal Cabrera. Whose uh, name is very fun to say. It is funny to say, and uh, for no other reason than it has a little bit of a swear word in it, and the word bra. Uh, <laughs> so that's two reasons. The, the thing about Cabrera that you were saying, though, is that uh, despite the fact that we we have uh, just a small sample um, from his early you know his early season performance here, he's actually crushing the ball. And simply because we don't we can't make definitive statements given uh, the size of the sample, um, we can also watch him and, and maybe say, well, he's in a position given his age um, and maybe given like his health, which which has maybe been a question mark before, um, where he actually he actually could have improved, right? Uh, so I guess we could start with him, and I wanted to sort of look at you know a number of players here whose numbers even you know early on have diverted considerably from um, what we've seen in the years past, and I, I'd like to you know look at these guys, and I want um, you know you fellows to make some assessments to say you know suggest like you know best educated guess if you think that uh, these early season numbers are in fact sample size flukes, or if maybe there's something that we know about this player that would suggest that. Uh, there, there's something real to these, and so let's start with Cabrera. Uh, Joe Paul, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about what you said about him, and then uh, what conclusions, if any, uh, and however, you know, sort of uh, guarded, uh, you might draw. Well, uh, the main thing I noticed is that it came from an observation of Cabrera, at, at along with, you know, along with the the the, the, you know, the obvious statistical profile. And I started to look into him a little deeper. I noticed he'd been swinging, missing a lot more. He'd been hitting a lot more fly balls. And I was thinking, oh, maybe he's actually doing something different. Uh, and after the fact, I learned that, in fact, in spring training, Orlando Cabrera and his hitting coach had him ditching the whole choke up on the bat thing and that he's kind of swinging with more authority now. Now, that's not to say that this is definitely sustainable because we know the guys make adjustments and the league makes adjustments to them. So maybe there's a hole in his swing that people haven't exploited yet. But it's pretty clear that he has changed something, and that we could be in line. For, you know, he might be in line for like a 200 ISO this year. Right, and so it, well, that's an interesting piece of sort of scouting information then too. So, 
Um, and not something I'm going to be, uh, you know, coming to conclusions on on my own, but that I'm glad to have other people pointing out to me. Right, and it shows us that information is available. Now, uh, this is actually, uh, Dave Kierman, you're sort of um, curiously situated to comment on Cabrera because he was actually, I believe, a prospect in the Mariner system, yes? Yeah, he was. He was actually traded for the immortal Ben Broussard in uh, the time when Bill Levesi decided to trade good players for both halves of Cleveland's platoon DH. So we got rid of Azrubal Cabrera and Shinsu Chu in the same summer for Eduardo Perez and Ben Broussard. Well, actually, I mean, to, to Eduardo Perez's credit, uh, he maybe he didn't play so well as Seattle. He absolutely crushed lefties. Yeah, that was the idea. Broussard could hit righties, Perez could hit lefties. They got to Seattle, neither could hit either side. They were both out of baseball two years later, and now Cabrera and Chu are like the Indians' two best young players, besides Carlos Santana. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's all facts, what you're saying there. Now, yeah. w- with regard to Cabrera, um, I mean, as uh, Joe Paul mentioned, he was what I think like ranked number 15 in the Mariners organization the uh, you know the preseason before he got traded uh, you know is obviously those are you know that's a long way off but is that something that could change as far as you're concerned yeah so the interesting thing about Cabrera is the he was part of the uh, experiment by Bill Levesi and their farm director at the time to rush guys through the system extremely quickly so Cabrera went from A ball to AAA in a flash he actually started at Tacoma as a 20-year-old, and the year they traded him, he was playing in Tacoma at age 20, uh, and, you know, obviously getting overmatched, because they decided just to push him through the system, and they did this with a few other guys as well, where they decided that aggressive promotions would kind of help them determine which players could make it and which players wouldn't, almost like a survival of the fittest kind of thing, rather than trying to actually develop players at a normal pace, and so... Uh, Cabrera did really poorly in AAA as a 20-year-old, and they decided he couldn't make it and shipped him out. So I think looking at his minor league numbers, you're not going to get a good sense of Cabrera's development path because of how the Mariners treated him. I will say that, you know, I saw a couple of Cabrera's home runs because he hit them in Tesco Field off the Mariners this weekend, and I might be a little more conservative on the power stroke than uh, looking at some changes because he hit one home run off Jason Vargas, a notorious home run uh, a lower on an 87 mile an hour fastball up in the zone, and then he hit another one off Eric Bedard on an 88 mile an hour cut fastball at the belt. So neither of these pitches were uh, high quality uh, fastballs from real good major league pitchers. I mean, you know, Vargas and Bedard have their strengths, but velocity on upper, you know, belt high fastballs is not one of them. And so half of his home runs came off pretty bad pitches. Um, but I will say that I, I'm a Azrubal Cabrera fan. I've been a fan for a while. I think there's gap power there. I don't know that he's going to post a 200 ISO. I might go more for like 130, 140, but I think he's got some pop where he could hit, you know, maybe 10 home runs, 30, 35 doubles. Uh, he makes decent contact and he draws some walks and he plays decent defense. So overall, I think it's Rubel Cabrera is a nice three-win player. And, uh, you know, if he has made some adjustments and he can hit the ball with more authority, then that will help. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so that's uh, Cabrera. Maybe no hard and fast conclusions, but uh, maybe some promising um, things there. Uh, Cameron, I think that uh, one guy you've been interested in early on is Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, so I wrote about Clayton Kershaw after watching his first start against the Giants because uh, it seemed to me that the slider that he was throwing was harder than he'd, he'd thrown last year. Um, he was throwing, you know, 85, 86 mile an hour sliders that almost looked more like cut fastballs. And when I looked at his velocity on a slider from last year, it was more 81, 82 with a bit more bend to it. And so I had Dave Allen look into it and he said it did it. Uh, he agreed the pitch effects data made it look like it was a slightly different pitch or maybe different movement on a pitch with uh, more velocity and a little less break. And, um, the interesting thing to me was how often he was using it against right-handed hitters. Cause I, I talked about this with Kershaw last year as he was, an extreme platoon split guy. Lefties couldn't touch him, but righties he wasn't nearly as good against. 
And this year, that slider cutter thing, whatever it is that he's throwing, has really kind of shifted that, where Kershaw actually has a higher strikeout rate against right-handed batters than he does against left-handed batters right now. It's just three starts, two of them against the same team. Uh, and But the Giants do have some good right-handed hitters. I mean, Buster Posey and Pat Burrell, these guys aren't terrible hitters, especially on southpaws. And so um, I think it's interesting when you see something like that where you can see a physical mechanical change that a pitcher has made leading to a shift in results against opposite-handed hitters, that's something I think to pay attention to. We've seen that with some guys developing change-ups or cutters before, and, you know, Esteban Loiza and Cliff Lee and some of these guys who have added this pitch, neutralized other si- hitters from other sides of the plate and taken off into something they've never been before. Kershaw's already been pretty good. If he's got this, you know, cut slider thing going on that he can get right-handers out, look how he might be the best pitcher in the National League. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that, too, uh, is that I, I was reading a, a bit on a Beyond the Box score about uh, Clay Buckholz doing basically the same exact thing. They're taking a slider that had a little more depth and a little less velocity, and kind of ramping up the velocity, taking down the uh, taking down the break a little bit, and kind of uh, you know attributing it to a lot of success last year. Now, is that when a uh, is that when a, sl- a slider becomes a slutter? Yeah, I think that's kind of this is one of those pitches that's kind of a little bit tough to categorize. It's, you know, there's actually if you look at the pitch effects algorithm. It has a hard time picking up on cutters and sliders, especially for guys who throw harder velocities. And so sometimes it'll call an 88 mile an hour slider. It'll call it a cutter because not that many people can throw 88 mile an hour sliders. These two pitches are actually pretty similar. And so as we see these guys maybe shifting away from big sweeping sliders, which Dave Allen has written about, have the largest platoon split of any pitch in baseball, and going more towards uh, a harder pitch that doesn't break quite as much, it seems like that pitch does a better job of getting opposite-handed hitters out. And, you know, with the rise of the cutter that we've seen the last few years, I would suspect this is a trend all across baseball. Now, on the topic of uh, velocity changes, uh, Joe Paul, uh, there's a guy, I don't know if he's near and dear to your heart, but he's near he's near to you geographically at least, uh, Phil Hughes, who's had an alarming drop in his velocity. Uh, you know, from what you've seen, is that is that something that's, uh, that's real because that obviously fastball velocity is something that's going to stabilize pretty quickly. Um, is that something that's real? And if it is, uh, how big of a problem is it? Well, it's 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 definitely real because you could you, know, you could measure that the velocity is not there, and that's big for Hughes because his fastball is by far his best pitch, at least at this point in his career. Uh, and the problem is to go along with that. One, he hasn't he hasn't had command of a single thing all year, and two, his breaking ball has no depth to it. So I think it might be. You know, a larger mechanical issue that's leading to the uh, to the velocity drop just because everything else isn't there. Uh, but you know, it's definitely a concern. We've seen it a lot from a guys who have you know these huge workloads one year, and then you know they go through their normal off-season training regimen and they come back a bit weaker the next year. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely a concern, and I, I don't think that just having to go through the motions is really going to uh, to solve much at this point. So what's the, so what's the answer for for Phil Hughes or for the Yankees then? I, I, Carson, if I had an answer, I, w- I, I would definitely tell you, but it's, you know, I wish, I hope I'm wrong. I hope he goes out, uh, tomorrow night. He was supposed to start tonight, but the rain out, he's pitching tomorrow night. Uh, and, you know, if the velocity's not there, I really don't know what they'll do other than giving him, uh, you know, some extra days of rest, which they can. They have two days off next week, so they can kind of skip him around. Okay, and are you concerned as a Yankees fan? I mean, or do you think that that's one of those, it's sort of an, cause I think, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, who, uh, I believe, Maybe uh, Jeff Zimmerman, maybe someone else did a study that was on the site recently uh, regarding fastball velocity and how it actually increases as the season goes on or towards, you know, it, it, maybe it's equated uh, with, uh, 
warmth. Uh, yeah, Mike Fast actually did an article on that at the, during spring training and talked about how I think peak velocity in April was about 1.5 miles an hour lower than peak velocity in July. And so I actually did a piece for ESPN last week about Phil Hughes and referenced that article saying that like if we compare Hughes' fastball to what it was all of last year, it's going to be deceptive because we have to compare it to what it would be expected in April, especially April 1st and April 8th, the day he was making his starts, where instead of 92-93, maybe we should have been expecting him to throw 90-91. So he's still bad. Uh, he, was at 90, not he was at 92. He was at 92 last April. Right, but I mean, that was uh, after converting from the bullpen and not carrying a big load. I'm saying, like, yeah. what would his expected velocity be in it as a normal starter? And fast research suggested maybe one and a half down from peak of the summer. And Hughes sat at 92, 93 last summer. So I think, you know, 89 isn't so far off from where we'd expect. I actually wouldn't be surprised if Hughes just showed up fixed in a couple of starts and started throwing 92, 93 again. I wish I was that confident. Yeah. Now, there are a couple other uh, velocity droppers. Uh, Mike. Uh, how, how do we say this? Mike uh, Podhorzer? Is anyone going to agree with me there? Sure. He writes for uh, he writes for us. He writes for Rotographs. <laughs> and uh, he recently did a piece that you know, on the fantasy side of things, but which is totally uh, you know relevant to this particular conversation on guys who are showing more and showing less velocity. Uh, you know, besides Hughes, there's Colby Lewis, Wade Davis, Brad Penny, uh, Liriano, Luke Hochaver, and Kyle Davies are all showing more than two. Um, two miles per hour less. Uh, now, you know this could be subject to a number of variables, but I'm wondering if any of those names uh, stick out to you, Cameron, as guys who you think, you know, it's more than a fluke. Yeah, and the guy that I would be most worried about on that list is Francisco Liriano. He got bombed again today. This is a guy with a long history of arm problems, who's you know never sustained a, a big workload like he did last year. I mean, he threw like I think 190 innings in the regular season, and then he pitched in the playoffs. Um, I think that Liriano is a guy who has always been seen as a ticking time bomb, so anytime his velocity goes down, uh, it's a real problem. And as we saw the year before, Liriano, when he was pitching, trying to come back from Tommy John surgery and didn't have his velocity, was pretty terrible. And uh, I think this is a guy who needs that extra couple picks in order to be a good pitcher because if everything else really works off his fastball. Um, his slider and changeup can be good pitches, but he, if he's throwing a 90 mile an hour fastball, he can't set them up very well. And so I know, uh, you know, you were pretty high on Liriano when we talked about him a couple of podcasts ago in our preseason one, but I would say this is a guy that, uh, if I was a fantasy owner, I would be desperately looking around for someone who believes he's going to rebound. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, I did, I did like him. And of course, I think the one thing that, you know, the, um, all, all three of you guys in the pod said, well, you know, we do like him, but at the same time, uh, that's a you know the frightening prospect is injury and you know even if he's not injured technically right now then then something is happening. Um, of course, Colby Lewis is on that list too, uh, and uh, you know Colby Lewis is not Colby Lewis for me in 2011 what he was for me in 2010, uh, and he doesn't he doesn't necessarily rely on his fastball. Uh, you know he, his slider I think is probably his his number one pitch, but. Two and a half miles per hour has to be a little bit nerve, you know, has to make anyone nervous, I guess. John Daniels, Texas Rangers, etc. Uh, I don't know. Uh, either of you, is that is that something to watch out for, or do you somehow think Colby Lewis uh, will get through this? I, I will say that uh, we know for certain that Texas is the one park in baseball that records the lowest velocity on their pitch effects. Kansas City is high, and Texas is low, and most other parks are pretty close. Um, but I would say that if I don't know if Lewis has made most of his starts at home so far, but if he has, that could be a legitimate explanation for why his pitch effects numbers would be down because we know Texas is 
park just reports lower numbers. So that would be one that I wouldn't be as concerned about. If it's, you know, lower on the road consistently as well, maybe that's something to look at. But, it, you know, starts in Texas, we have to adjust our expected velocity numbers in pitch of exhale. Oh, that's good. That's a... Uh... That's like almost a real fact. Did, were you expecting him to produce a real fact, Joe Paul? Oh, no, not at all. I was expecting him to say something along the lines of, uh, yeah, we should be concerned about this because it's a play that Carson likes and it's you know, the sophomore jinx. Right, and because he, he seems generally spiteful towards me. Wouldn't you agree? Um, I'll leave this uh, leave that one with no comment. Yeah, well, that's probably... Something. I think I'm just spiteful towards everyone, Carson. Well, that makes me feel better, I guess. Um, well, let me, Carson, let me, let me add uh, about Brad Penny on that list. Okay, and, yeah. Uh, he kind of surprises me. Yeah. Well, it doesn't surprise me per se, but it was interesting because I just read an article about how he changed his off-season work regimen. Uh, apparently, he's been working out with MMA fighters and, and uh, employing some of their tactics into his into his his routine. And I find it interesting that in a winter after he does that, he experiences a, a significant drop in fastball velocity. Um, so, I mean, are you allowed to use Brazilian jiu-jitsu as as a pitcher? Well, I assume no one would charge the mound on you. No, that's probably true. I don't think I would have done that. Of of, <laughs> of all the opinions I have about Brad Penny, none of which um, are particularly um, complimentary, um, one thing I could say is that I would consider him a dangerous person to charge the mound. Oh, I wouldn't. He looks like you could uh, you could out you could with a little agility you can get around him. You think so? Yeah, I get a couple of jabs of the gut going. But not anymore. And I'm and I'm actually I, I want to take this point to add while we're talking about Brad Penny how thoroughly disappointed I, I am in him for just lazing off on that Josh Hamilton play yesterday. <laughs> the hey, one, he the was one by the time Hamilton was sliding he wasn't even halfway to home plate where he should have been standing the entire time. Right. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about a couple of Cardinals pitchers then. That's that's where Brad Penny was last year. Uh, there are two interesting cases over there. One of them's Kyle Loesch. The other's uh, either Jaime or Jamie Garcia. I think probably Jamie is the Anglo version, um, and we're a very culturally sensitive uh, group here on Fangraphs Audio, so we'll go with Jaime for now. Uh, Cameron, you were interested particularly in Kyle Loesch, I guess. Well, not I mean, as much as anyone could possibly be interested in Kyle Loesch, <laughs> but uh, I, I will say that uh, you know Dave Duncan, the pitching coach there in St. Louis, has, is notorious for taking these uh, mid-'80s generic back-end number five starters teaching them a thinker and turning them into, you know, God. And so he's done this with so many pitchers over the years that it's become something of a running joke that what can't uh, Dave Duncan fix? And, you know, Loesch was absolutely atrocious last year. Uh, you know, I think he battled some injuries, only threw about 90 innings, uh, couldn't get anyone out. Well, so far in his first two starts this year, Kyle Loesch has a 59% ground ball rate after being a middling fly ball pitcher for most of his career. Uh, we can't make any evaluations for sure on two starts, but this would not be the first time that Dave Duncan has taken an 88-mile-an-hour four-seam guy, turned him into an 88-mile-an-hour two-seam guy, and turned him into an all-star pitcher. So uh, I would say Kyle Loesch, worth keeping an eye on. Joe Paul, doesn't the weird thing about Dave Cameron's argument that that Loesch was also um, there last year? And well, I mean, that? he seemed to be hurt last year and and the year before. So there's yeah, there's only so much you can you can do with a guy who's facing you know who's suffering through injuries. Oh, so you support Dave Cameron in this regard? Well, I don't know. I mean, it is two starts, and and we're always trying to be guarded with what we the conclusions we draw from these starts. But I mean, it, it, am I insane for starting to see a little Joel Pinheiro there? And he's only walked one through the, through his first 15 innings, and that was that was Pinheiro's bigger thing than the ground balls when he was with uh, St. Louis was he didn't walk anybody. Right. Um, 
yeah. I, well, let's stop talking about Kyle Loesch, I guess, because he's kind of depressing. Uh, how is he? De- wait, wait. How is he depressing? This he's kind of interesting at this point. This is this is the most interesting Kyle Loesch has ever been in his career. Right. Well, that's isn't that damning with faint praise, or damning with any sort of praise at all, <laughs> faint or otherwise. Ad- that's ad- it's adequate praise. I, I no. I'll tell you what it is. Is uh, a guy, uh, one guy who's been on the pod a couple times is Dan Moore from uh, Viva Alberto's. And I think Dan Moore is one of the sharpest uh, baseball writers there is. And he has a series of um, of uh, dramatized sort of play-like things in which Kyle Loesch features prominently. And mostly he's like the kid who's getting his lunch taken or, uh, you know, like having his underwear put up the flagpole. Um, and I guess it's maybe – I guess I, I've sort of uh, borrowed it from him is that the idea of like Kyle Loesch is just like the most miserable kid in school. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm, I'm willing to entertain the fact that Kyle Loesch is good, but um, maybe he could change how he spells his name. I mean, wh- why is he Loesch? Why isn't he Loesch or something like that? So Brad, so that, that would be pronunciation, not spelling. Yeah, but... Right, he right. You can fix the spelling to fit, to fit the pronunciation. Yeah, that's what I want to see here. Uh, anyway, let's talk about Jaime Garcia, because he's absolutely dominated through his first two starts. Um, it, I don't know, is that Dave Duncan, or is that Jaime Garcia... Uh, just being a young pitcher is getting even better, Cameron. Well, Garcia was a top prospect coming up through the system before Dave Duncan ever got his hands on him, so I don't think we can just say any pitcher who does good in St. Louis is Dave Duncan. I mean, Adam Wainwright was a you know a top prospect, so the Cardinals do have some good pitchers, too. Uh, I do think that Duncan certainly helps their development, and certainly it doesn't hurt for them to have him around. Um, but Garcia's always been a, a talented pitcher to get strikeouts and ground balls, his command has been questionable and his health has been questionable. But right now he's healthy and he's throwing strikes. And so, you know, you remove the two flaws from a guy's game who does everything else well and he's going to pitch, you know, pretty darn well and get good results. So I think that's what we're seeing right now is when Garcia is at 100% and throwing strikes, he's tough. And, you know, right now he's doing both things. Oh, yeah. All right, that's all right. Uh, Joe Paul, anything to add to that? No, not really. That's really all he's done at this point. He's made opposing batters look pretty pretty damn silly with that with his with his breaking pitches. So it, there's not much to add. He's just kind of doing the same thing he did last year, which is kind of what I didn't expect. I mean, I expected a lot of the same process but different results. But this year he's uh, when you said different results, do you mean like more towards league average as opposed? Yeah, to I, no, 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 no. I I just meant uh, his ERA would be closer to you know three five than it was to three zero. Okay. Uh, you know, he was at 2.7 last year, which is just, it, it was enormous. But, you know, he had a, a 3 4 one fifth and, and a good ground ball rate, so you can see him sustaining good results. I just didn't expect him, I, it's only two starts again, but I didn't expect him to open the season just this, this torridly. Okay. Uh, well, then you submit a name. Why don't you submit a name? A name for a player who is getting off to a good start who I think is going to sustain, sustain uh, said good start? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a good start, but... Uh it could be any type of start, but what, yeah, it's so much for us to discuss. Uh, I will I will submit the only one war player uh, in the league right now, Matt Kemp. Oh, okay. Well, so what's going on with Matt Kemp? Uh, he's basically you know, it, it was the big storyline going into the year. Was this was a big year for him? He was you know he was just atrocious on defense last year and had a terrible year at the plate. And he's coming this year. He looks like I'm you know he looks like he's kind of heard the message. He's yeah you know, he's not gonna his his habit right now is five sixteen, which. I, I don't know, Carson. I just don't think I, I don't think he can sustain it. Maybe, no, you know, maybe if he well, no, of maybe course. Maybe if Jim Bauer or Albert Pujols, he'd have a chance. Right. So uh, he's not going to sustain that. So we could say, uh, I mean, I don't know what his lifetime figure is. I, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be willing to bet he could sustain something slightly above average. Looks like I'm really impressed by his. Uh, I'm really impressed by his walk rate, though. Well, what he's is walking twenty percent of his plate. Twenty percent of his plate appearances. 
Okay, right. So that's a real thing. And it also appears though his strikeout rate is down to like around 11% from a career average of 25. So, I mean, so those are things that are slightly, uh, you know, a, a little lower layer as, uh, as uh, well, someone might say that. Who? Tennyson? Anyway, um, so is that a real thing? I mean, that, that, those types of things stabilize kind of quickly. It, it, I mean, do you think that uh, that Kemp has somehow improved in his age 26 season? I don't think he's improved. I think we're going to see him return to you know kind of the potential that we thought we were going to see from him before. You know, maybe 280 to 300 average, you know, 375-ish on base, uh, decent, you know, a you know 250-ish, maybe a little bit less ISO. Um, and you know, the, the one thing I think that might be able to sabotage the one thing I think can sabotage the season, and you know, and it's, it goes right along with the walk rate is he is one of the only threats on that offense, right. and that's. That, that might that definitely might change the way that pitchers approach him because it, beyond him the Dodgers really don't have much. Right, and of and course now uh, I believe Rafael Furcal uh, was a broken thumb or something, and uh, he's not necessarily like a huge producer, but for a shortstop, um, I think he's offensively. Yeah, and for the Dodgers, he's definitely one of their top guys. Right. And that was basically Ethier, who I I'm, I'm down on for this season, and uh, you know the rest of the lineup, it just nothing really inspires a lot of confidence out there. Okay. Hey, now Dave Cameron, this one guy that Joe Paul's mentioned, Matt Kemp, uh, is sort of seems like one of a small group of players um, who are known for their offensive abilities and, and maybe their power overall, but who have also cut their strikeout rates dramatically. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch. I mean, most of these guys are 40 or 50 plate appearance samples, so as always, we're you know throwing up the this could just be a fluke thing. But uh, it's interesting if you scroll through the leaderboards, you'll see a lot of guys who strike out a lot who are not striking out at all this year. Prince Fielder has struck out twice. Uh, he's got one of the lowest strikeout rates in all of baseball. I wrote about Joey Votto yesterday, who's cut his strikeout rate in half. Matt Kemp, as he just mentioned, Justin Upton, I think, has cut his strikeout rate in half. Chipper Jones has not yet struck out this year. He's uh, one of two hitters, I think, in all of baseball who has not yet to whiff. And Chipper's always been a pretty good contact hitter, but to go 45 play appearances without a strikeout is... You know, that's the kind of thing you expect from, like, a backup utility infielder, not a guy who, you know, takes a swing that could actually hit the ball over the fence. And so um, it's just interesting to me that we've seen a decent selection of these uh, younger power-hitting guys all cutting the strikeout rate dramatically in the first month of the season. This isn't a trend across baseball. I haven't seen the strikeout rate fall significantly uh, over the course of the league. It seems to be a select few group of talented players who have, you know, whether coincidentally or if this was just an off-season training regimen where they all got together and decided, let's stop striking out, uh, you know, if they had that power, I think they should have done that a few years ago. But it's just interesting to note how many of these good young hitters have dramatically cut their strikeout rates in the first week of the season. And it's funny, too, because a lot of them haven't really lost that much power either. Right. It's not a trade-off. It's just an improvement. Is there anything that would be able to explain that besides a fluke? Uh, you know, or, or would there be... Uh, I don't know. I mean, if if it's not a trend, if it's not a league-wide trend, would there be any sort of thing that might explain that besides just the fact that a lot of these guys are sort of entering their prime? You know, I think with, like, Votto, I wrote the piece yesterday that basically pitchers are pitching him differently now that he's the league MVP, and, you know, maybe that offense, there's not a whole lot of depth behind him, so they're not throwing him strikes, and he's just adjusted by leaving the bat on their shoulders, and so at that point we can understand why his strikeout rate is so low. He's now just not swinging at pitches out of the strike zone, and pitchers are being more careful with him. With Kemp, we actually see his O-swing percentage is not down at all from last year. Uh, he's just stopped swinging at more strikes. So he's being more selective with pitches in the strike zone, which seems to me to not be a great idea, honestly. And so I think that it's just an individual thing where Votto, we could probably explain it and say, like, there's 
some real changes going on in approach here. With Kemp, it seems to maybe just be, uh, I would say, a small sample size fluke. I mean, if he's not swinging at fewer strikes, uh, fewer pitches out of the zone, it's hard for me to believe that he's going to actually strike out that much less. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we could do this all day uh, and sort of look at these small samples. There are a couple guys that I, a couple last guys I think we should get in. Um, I'll just sort of state their names and I'll allow you guys to sort of pick and choose who you want. Um, Charlie Morton is uh, has striking out like two guys per nine early on and walking six, and he's throwing a two-seamer with a ton of movement. Uh, Trevor Cahill, I thought after watching him two starts ago versus Toronto that it would be impossible for him not to be the best pitcher because he was just throwing his two-seam fastball, which also has a ton of run, on the low, uh, low and outside quarter to every right-hander. He looked um, indomitable. Uh, Matt Garza has decided to strike out a ton of people. That's crazy. And, um, well, those three guys have been the most interesting to me. Uh, feel free to pick up on – oh, and sorry, Jose Tabata uh, is, is only striking out in like 10% of his play appearances but walking at 15. And Jason Hayward, I submit, is the best hitter in all of baseball. So there you go, five, six names for you to pick from. Joe Paul, why don't you start? Uh, well, I, I, I like a lot of those guys, but I really like the Cahill question uh, because of the similarities he bears to a lot of guys uh, who are coming into their second or third years in the league. Uh, I kind of pointed to, I, I like to point to two guys when it comes to this, Justin Verlander and, and John Lester, in that they, you know, they were strikeout guys in the minors, and Cahill was definitely a strikeout guy in the minors. Um, and they came into the league and they they started out and they had you know average or below average strikeout rates. But once they got in, once they were in the league for a year or two, their strikeout rates just jumped over to over a batter per inning. Uh, and and it looks like Cahill might be making a similar kind of adjustment. And I looked at uh, Clay Buckholz before the season. I thought he was kind of in line for a similar thing, uh, where I'm not sure why their strikeout rates were so much lower than they were in the minors in their first couple, first year, first two years, or whatnot in the majors. Uh, but they, they experienced that jump back to their, I guess, their potential levels. And you know, I'm not going to write off Cahill's start just because it's a few starts. I really think he's got uh, a couple weapons working for him this year that'll that'll pump up that strikeout rate. Okay, so Cahill was your your main focus. Um, uh, Cameron, one or more. Yeah, I think to me the guy who's having probably the most interesting start to any player in baseball is Charlie Morton. I mean, this is a guy who last year posted really good peripherals and perhaps the largest gap of results uh, to peripherals of any pitcher in baseball. He was absolutely atrocious, but his exit was actually pretty good. He got he limited walks. He struck out a few guys and wasn't an extreme ground baller, but he you know he got a decent amount of ground balls. And despite that, his Babbitt was so high that he was getting up. I think at one point his ERA was over 10 when they sent him back to the minors. Uh, he was absolutely getting destroyed for Pittsburgh. So this year he shows up and uh, starts throwing uh, 88% fastballs after throwing about 60% fastballs last year. So he significantly more fastball usage and just pounding two-seamers down and away to where the only possible outcome on any pitch he throws is either a ball, which will lead to a walk, or a ground ball. And that's what we've seen. He's got the highest ground ball rate in baseball, 75%, and he's got one of the worst walk rates in baseball at almost 7 per 9, and his strikeout rate has fallen to like 2.5 per 9. So he's stopped striking people out. He's now walking people like crazy, and he's got the best ground ball rate in baseball. And through all of that, you would think that that's not a very successful recipe. He's got a bad of 190, and he's got an ERA below 2. So it's basically the Fausto Carmona uh skill set from a few years ago, just cranked up 120 degrees with really good results. There's no way he'll be able to keep doing this, but for two starts, it's really fascinating, especially considering what Morton was last year. 
And, and I watched one of those starts though when he started against, uh, I guess it was St. Louis. And it was there was a lot a lot of low strikes called, which I really think helped out Morton uh, helped this case a lot in that one game, which might really skew the results at this point. Well, yeah, I, but you know the thing is, I guess anytime uh, Pittsburgh, between how uh, amazing their stadium is and how awesome uh, their uniforms are, uh, and then when you combine that with the fact that Neil Huntington actually seems to have a clue, um, although. Uh, well, I, I certainly relative to to previous GMs, it's a team you want to perform well. So, uh, I could want for say uh, I don't know if 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 Charlie Morton um, will continue to play well, but uh, I hope he does uh, for the sake of uh, baseball. Uh, one last player that actually it's impossible uh, to ignore at this point uh, that I'd like to submit is Mark Burley, who even though he's uh, currently sporting a very Mark Burley-esque 4.26 ERA, has uh, only struck out three batters in 19 innings um, against walking four. It hasn't hurt him too much as of yet, but it's also um, maybe a little bit concerning. Just uh, early on, his velocity has been a little bit down from last year, but of course that could just be early season adjustment. But he also just like the stuff, the, the fact that like even though he, he, he d- demonstrates a lot of pitchability, we might say, uh, his natural stuff is lacking. And uh, therefore, those sorts of numbers that he's posting so far could be concerning. Joe Paul, uh, if you were Burley or the White Sox, are you concerned right now? Can't be right now. I mean, it's, he's he's been if he's got if his stuff is diminished, he's making the proper adjustments in order to compensate. Uh, I mean, you look at he's got he's got a 4.26 ERA, yes, and he's got a 1.42 strikeouts per nine, but his FIP's still a 3.37. Right. So he's definitely put it, he, he's still doing some things right. Uh, you know, even his ex-fip is 4.71, which is just astounding for a guy who's struck out three guys all year. Yeah, that uh, is crazy. So you're not. So you're not crazy I'm not concerned you're... now. Uh, just because I said because he's he seems to be making the proper adjustments if it is a if it is a stuff concern. Uh, but you know, we obviously don't know the extent of that yet. Okay, Cameron. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'd go Joe that I'm not concerned. I think every pitcher makes a conscious decision to either pitch for ground balls or for strikeouts. Very few pitchers can do both, and the ones who can are amazing. But most pitchers, especially guys with pedestrian stuff, have to choose one or the other. They're either going to pitch down in the zone and try and get ground balls, or they're going to pitch up in the zone and try and get strikeouts. Burley is making a conscious decision to pitch down in the zone and get ground balls, and this is one of the reasons why, despite the low strikeout rate, his exit's actually okay, because he doesn't give up balls in the air. And, you know, in that park in April, that's probably not a bad idea. So, um, I think... You know, Burley is probably understanding the hitters that he's facing, uh, the strikes of the opponents, and saying, you know what, I'm just going to throw the ball at their knees and uh, let them put it in play because I don't think these hitters are that good. And, uh, you know, I'm fine keeping the ball in play. And then, you know, as the summer gets warming up a little bit and maybe his velocity picks up a little bit and the ball starts to fly a little bit more, maybe he'll go for a few more strikeouts rather than pitching quite as much contact. But in April, against some bad offenses, this isn't a bad idea. Okay. All right. Um so that's that. Now, I do want to sh- uh, shift to a, a sort of a, a topic of conversation that I certainly find interesting um, and which uh, involves both of you uh, as well um, is some uh, changes, modifications to the site itself recently. Um, one of them is the uh, introduction of Joe Paul's column the morning after in which, um, in which Joe, you look at uh, basically, or, or you know, you look at every game from the day before, and I guess you highlight the things that might be of interest, uh, you know, to the smarter baseball fan. Um, well, it really, it's it's designed for the smarter baseball fan because not only you know do you look at the sort of sabermetric elements, but uh, you'll also consider other things that make 
the game of baseball fun, and and you you write with humor, and um, uh, sometimes you know more analytically, sometimes uh, you know you uh, you know you point out some other things, some moments from games um, that might be significant, but are otherwise lost. Uh, and the other thing is uh, the recent change that uh, Appleman made, um, um, thanks to Amazing Avenue, as uh, Appleman phrased it, thoroughly trashing our previous box score, uh, to to a new box score is. Uh, in some ways, consolidating what was there before, or you know what's been on the site, and uh, I guess repackaging it, but in a slightly more user-friendly way. Um, I want to start with you, Joe Paul, to sort of talk about your interest in this. But generally, I'm interested in is um, ways that we might adjust from the sort of traditional box score, or traditional way of, of consuming reports about the game or anticipating games, whether it's by means of preview, which is obviously an interest of mine via the um, one uh, one night only uh, column. Um, I'm curious as to, to changes or you know, Joe Paul, uh, your motivations for writing the morning after, and you know, early changes you've made and things that you you might see yourself doing later on. Well, uh, the motivation came out of as most things, it came out of a personal desire. Uh, for years and years, I'd been a guy who just wanted one place where I could find out everything that happened the night before without. Uh, Without having you know, have, without having to read the box scores, basically, um, I know there are there are some recap spots out there, and it's basically just uh, uh, rephrasing the box score. And you know, there's value in that, I guess. But I wanted something a bit more, and I knew it would take a lot of work to do because it means watching a whole ton of baseball. But let's be honest, Carson, who doesn't like watching a whole ton of baseball? <laughs> well, I, I I mean, you and I have had this conversation about it. I think that you're doing a great job, but I I worry about your mental health. <laughs> uh, because you, you're writing like what? Tw- are you writing still 2,500 words per night now? No, it's not. I don't think it's quite that much, is it? I don't. I don't put it into the uh, the word processor, so I don't know how how long they are. Uh, but, you know, has it has it, it become a problem yet, or are you still uh, you still doing all right? No, it's actually it's been great, and I have to say, uh, having an iPad has been uh, basically. If I didn't have the iPad, I don't think I'd be able to sustain it all season. Okay, but you. But, did, and I will say as a, as an aside. Uh, you bought that iPad, I believe, when we were in Arizona, right? Oh, it was the best decision ever because uh, my colleague Mike Axisa and I uh, went to a local Walmart, and they did, you know, no line, no nothing, just iPad sitting there for us to buy. And our our colleague from River Ave Blues, Ben Kaback, uh, who was in New York, who was two hours ahead of us, was still standing online for an iPad uh, when we were walking away with ours. <laughs> right, and and the thing the thing that was hilarious to me was uh, you were so excited about it, and then uh, yeah, Mike Exisa also had one too, and I said, oh, Mike, you excited to have that? He was like, eh, and I was like, oh, were you not like, expecting to buy one? He's like, no, but Joe wanted one. I figured, you know, I'll find something to do with it. <laughs> that was hysterical. <laughs> he, ended up, he ended up giving his to Ben because Ben never got one. Oh really? Oh wow. Oh well, that's very nice of him. I assume for uh, some uh, um, exchange. Of uh, American currency or something like that. I, I don't want to think of Mike just giving things away. <laughs> oh, Mike! Mike is a generous guy. Well, I know that. Um, so, so do you see uh, from what you started? Like, what have you learned? Um, I mean, have you learned interacting the, with the game this way on such an you know like intimate basis? You know, game you know covering every game. Have you learned anything? And do you think that'll affect the way you digest the game going forward? It'll def. I, I see it changing more. You know, I, I I'm not I'm not really sure what to expect later in the season when we're able to do a little more analysis uh, because we're getting a better idea of what's real and what's not for the season. Um, I will say though, in the early going, I expected this to happen and it has not. 
I expected it to lead to a lot of easy post ideas where I'd be like, hey, I just finished the I finished the morning after, and now I have like these three great post ideas. Which one am I going to write about? Mm-hmm. Nope, they're just as easy, just as hard to come up with as as they were before. Right, and I and uh, I'm sure that, uh, that there are a lot of readers who are sympathetic to that, but it is the thing is like writing a post or two is not really that hard, you know. But it's the idea of writing a post every day can be uh, difficult. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. just you know, there's you have, and there's the thing is, the, the problem. You know, it's not a problem. It's that there's so much out there to write about. It's just a matter of being able to come up with you know something interesting to say about it. That's more than hey, look at this guy. Small sample alert. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Cameron, you're obviously a fan of the baseball, and obviously from a safe metric perspective, I'm curious as to sort of your uh, your sort of reactions to to Joe's morning after project, and then maybe on to the to the box score that Appleman has recently introduced. Yeah, you know, I think uh, and this certainly goes for Joe and the work that he's done. But I would I would say that um, as you guys were just talking about writing a daily column, I, I mean, I'm giving kudos to our own staff. But I think like you and Joe and Jack Moore and um, you know, these guys were literally cranking out quality content every day. I don't know that people realize how hard this is to put out an interesting uh, thought that hasn't been said about something that happened in baseball every 24 hours and have it be, you know, entertaining. I think we have a super talented staff, and so uh, I'll just say kudos to the three of you guys. Your your quality daily content has been awesome so far. And, you know, to Joe, hats off for work that I would not want to do, and we are, I think, all amazed that you're still alive and hope that at the end of the season <laughs> you will not quit in frustration and that you might continue this in 2012. But, uh, yeah, I think it's been a fantastic addition to the site, as are the new box scores. I know uh, when Appleman, he called me after the Amazing Avenue trashed our box scores, and he's like, our box scores suck, don't they? And I was like, yeah, I never use them. <laughs> and, you know, like, well, you know, he's in charge, and then I'm kind of sort of uh, semi-in charge below him. And uh, so the two guys who are mostly in charge of fan graphs aren't using our box scores. That's kind of a problem. And so he tore them down and kind of said, you know, what would I want to have in a box score? And apparently he couldn't make a decision, so he just decided the answer was everything. So <laughs> every stat you have on fan graphs is now in the box score updated mostly in real time, not the zone percentage and obviously not UVR. But, uh, you know, now you can get a pitcher's XFIP as the game is going along. Uh, you can see, you know, the number of infield flies on the same page that you can see the game graph. It's really a pretty awesome tool. And so, you know, I'm using our box scores almost exclusively at this point. Uh, I'm using them to reference things that I couldn't have referenced before. There was no way I was going to calculate the WOBA of a guy going three for three with two home runs and a walk but now it's calculated for me on the site, which is really awesome. And so um, I think the new box scores are tremendous, and Joe's morning after column is awesome, and I think uh, we're all pretty excited about where Fangas is going. So in terms of that, I'm wondering, uh, do, do you foresee other, like more changes to the box scores? I mean, do you consider them perfect? Do you think there's maybe too much information, or do you think that uh, that's sort of up for readers to decide? You know, I don't think we ever think that anything is perfect, and one of the things that I like most about Fangrass is how open David is to uh, feedback in terms of what people think works and what people think doesn't work. And so, you know, if there's things that are missing from the box score, people can certainly let us know. And if it makes sense, we'll add it, or, if, you know, if it makes sense to take it away, we can take it away. I don't think that there maybe uh, there's too much information because I think people can pick and choose, but there's certainly a lot of data on those pages now. And so, you know, maybe there's a way to condense it into a... Um, smaller format, although I do think the dashboard kind of gives you the chance to see what you want to see, and so, you know, it's pretty customizable for each individual, and in the end, I think our our approach is that more information is better, and if you don't want it, you don't have to look at it, but if you do want it, we're going to have it for you, and I think overall, people like that approach. 
Yeah, I will say it, it, it is sort of interesting because it, it is, you know, I mean, all three of us have probably, you know, been watching baseball for, you know, 20, 20 plus years or so. And, you know, and that's, you know, that goes back to, you know, before the internet really was, you know, was a thing you would look at um, with any sort of regularity. You know, you might call your library through your computer or something, but, um, but so, so all three of us, you know, probably begin with an experience of looking at a box score in the paper. And as insufficient as that is, it's also something to become used to. And I think that this idea of like becoming used to something and, you know, becoming familiar with it is something we see not just in coverage of baseball, but, you know, for example, with discussions of, of batting lineups, you know, like you're, that's something you're constantly dealing with. It's not necessarily what's optimal, uh, but also, you know, comparing it. And I, I think Tango had a good idea. Uh, Tango was discussing the idea of batting Hayward sixth in the Braves lineup. And he said that, that you know, when you're looking for lineup optimization, one thing you're looking for is to score runs. The other thing is you're looking for players to be in the egotistically appropriate lineup spot. Right, so if a guy considers himself a number four hitter, like you know, I think this this probably happened uh, when the Red Sox were dealing with David Ortiz and demoting him in the lineup. When you're going, when you're moving a guy down, you know, from the fourth spot to the sixth spot, uh, the the difference in the you know in the amount of runs you're going to score is is infinitesimal or inf- infinitesimal relative to the effect it's going to have on his perception of himself, essentially, and other people's perception of him. Um, I think you're dealing with it too in terms of the box score because you're saying this is some, this is a form with which I've been uh, you know I, I've been grown accustomed to over the years and we could change it to make it more precise uh, and more interesting but at the same time we're also sacrificing the familiarity. Um, I'm wondering how that is like Joe Paul for you when you know because you're going to probably be looking at these box scores quite a bit. I'm wondering how how that interacts with for you or the, the interaction between the familiar and the new but maybe more accurate. I might not be the best guy to ask about this because I've kind of ditched the idea of the traditional box score. Um, I, long ago, I, I get really frustrated looking at the MLB box scores because I have to look in like three different places for the information I want. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when when Dave changed the box scores, I got to admit they, they are super duper awesome, and I, I've grown to love them because I've grown to learn how to use them. At first, though, I was looking at it, and it's you know you got the line score on top. That was a great addition uh, because that's one thing I thought was missing. And then the WPA graph, which people I think I think people come to Fangraphs for that. Uh, and then you have the, the traditional box score under that. And I'm saying, thinking, wait a minute. I, what I loved about the Fangraphs box scores before is they were basically an expanded box score. They gave you the, the singles, the doubles, the triples, the homers, every basically every result, the ground balls for the pitchers, and everything. Uh, but I quickly learned. There's this little, this little nifty bar under the box score. Yeah. You click on standard, and you're right back at your, uh, you're right back at your expanded box score. Okay, right. So, so, th- so you, so for you, the expanded box score with all of the information kind of like happening simultaneously. This is, this is kind of your area of interest. Yeah, that's. I, I, I would rather, I would much rather see uh, one column extended for the entire team rather than the traditional, you know, MLB box score with one team on one side, one on the other. Um, I want, I want, I want all the information, Carson. Every little bit of it, right in front of me, in a line with nice headers, uh, and that's that's what I'm really growing used to, and, and really starting to like about the new box scores. Uh, you know, Cameron. Apart from the sort of uh, organizational line, I'm wondering for you personally, where you, for you, where you draw the line between the familiar and then the sort of new but more precise. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that's come up in conversations about some of the stats we've chosen on the site. I think one of the ones that comes up probably the most often is people ask about 
uh, K percentage because we calculate it as strikeouts divided by at-bats, not strikeouts divided by plate appearances. And some people have like a theoretical problem with this. And, you know, they're saying we're calculating it the wrong way. And I actually agree with them. Like when I got hired, one of the first conversations I ever had with Appleman was, hey, we should change the way we calculate strikeout rate. And uh, I made the same arguments that people make to us now of like, you know, when you're talking about the ratio of times a guy strikes out, you, you know, we want to know how many times he came to the plate, not how many times he came to the plate minus all the walks. And so um, David and I had a conversation about this. And essentially what he told me, and a, a point that I've mostly come around to is it doesn't matter. The correlation is 0.9999. You will never look at K percent as a divided by PA versus divided by at bat and get led astray by the divided by at bat version of the statistic. And so to change the number and change what people are used to, I feel like there is a cost. And so any number that people are familiar with or anything really that people have a, a familiarity with, the, the, you have to be able to justify the cost of that change. And in a situation where it's not going to change your analytical way, then maybe you stick with the old way. And so uh, in this in this instance with the box score, I think there's a massive improvement where the cost is not nearly as large as the increased data and kind of maybe getting away from the familiar gives you more information that's worth it. I do think there are scenarios, um, there are stats that have been developed that maybe are 1% or 2% uh, more effective in the theoretical realm of, you know, the formulation of the actual stat, but they're not actually going to help you get the right answer any more often. And from a practical perspective, it's not worth trying to teach someone an all-new stat with a new acronym and have people just roll your eyes and be like, oh, great, you invented another new stat that we have to learn. I do think there is some value in sticking with the familiar um, but there are times when I think the benefit outweighs the cost, and that's when you make the switch. Right. Okay. So that's when we do it. Uh, well, in terms of benefits outweighing costs, I think it would uh, uh, we're reaching a uh, diminishing returns on the podcast. Um, uh, so let's uh, let's close it down. Um, and it, it, we actually went pretty long without Clausen, uh, which is amazing because um, what's that? Oh, he's still in the middle of a sentence somewhere. <laughs> so well, he didn't be. Um, but let's say goodbye to to you jerks, uh, Joe Paul. Uh, always uh, the uh, a beacon of insight and um, uh, and um, I guess mid Atlanticdom. Are you in the mid Atlantic? Yeah, I guess mid. Well, yeah, definitely not northeast. Northeast is just a completely different region. So yeah, mid Atlantic works. Okay, all right. Well, you, uh, you've you've been great as always. Um, so th- so thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Carson. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, I mean, I hope you know I'm being sincere when I say that. And I hope you th- you know I'm being sincere when I say that. No, I'm suspicious. Uh, <laughs> Dave Cameron, uh, once again joining us from uh, the American South. Thank you, sir, for uh, taking time out of your very busy schedule. Uh, you know, today actually was a very busy schedule. Day. I think I missed about uh, 10 emails from important people during this podcast, so you're very welcome. Yeah, that's right. Well, very good. Okay, uh, and uh, uh, so that, that's that's what those guys are. Um, I am and will continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been another uh, white-hot, scintillating edition of Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.